0: This week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minnichi.
1: We're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out union on Patreon, You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. If you're wondering, hey, where did this episode come from? It's a surprise. That's right. We surprised you with this episode, no advanced warning. We're talking with Chris Conley of Saves the Day about the 20th anniversary of their album, through being cool let's get to it
2: this is chris
1: hey chris this is uh, tim and jay <laughs> with the dig me out podcast how are you doing hey tim and jay
3: how are you guys doing i'm doing great
1: great it's interesting, we, you know, we get I, to do occasionally these 20-year lookbacks at, at records, but not all the time. So usually when we do, we don't get to, you know...
3: Yeah, it's quite, a, it's quite a landmark, right? It's quite a milestone.
1: Well, yeah, and Jay and I were discussing this before. You know, in terms of the catalog, you know, this is the one where if, if somebody says, Hey, do you know Saves the Day? Yeah. And you're like, no, this is probably yeah. the album that they're going to recommend. Yeah, I would,
3: I would, I think that's the place to start. It's easy. It's easy listening for, and as far as saves the day goes, there's not, there's not too much intense email on there. It's more like a jawbreaker or something.
1: Do you think that this album sort of encapsulates the sound of, of what you were trying to do and what you are doing as a songwriter and a, as a vocalist and a, and a lyricist?
3: Well, I wouldn't say as a vocalist, although when you hear the, um, the double album that we're putting out as for the re-release, the 20th anniversary, contains uh, the basement demos that I made. Um, and we made those probably six months to a year before we actually tracked the record. And you can really hear how much I grew as a vocalist when you listen to the demos in reference uh, to the album. So I did grow a lot as a vocalist, but I was still just a punk singer. And, you know, I wasn't really I wasn't thinking too much about the technique of singing that came later for me once I got into the Beatles. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that's I feel like that's kind of the essence of Save Today, you know, through being cool and stay what you are kind of like that classic sound. And um, I'd say the self-titled record is kind of. Along those lines, that's why I wanted to name it Save the Day because it's like a, the classic Save the Day sound. And like that's just how I like music. Like I just like that I like uh, I like energetic, melodic pop rock.
1: When you went back and listened to those demos that you had originally done, and when you were digging through, you know archives for this re-release, are there moments where you're like i don't remember doing this I don't know how I did I don't w- recall what this was or what this is or do you have any moments like that where it's just a complete shock of things that you come across
3: no but there was one part that I completely forgot about we, there was um sort of like an alternate ending uh, to the song through being cool it had this extended outro where it there was like a mid tempo breakdown and we sort of wrote it out and there was an extra stanza of lyrics. And I had completely forgotten that we we chopped that off. At some point in the process we decided, oh, this song should end right here and we just like lopped off the tail. Um but as soon as I heard it, I remembered, Oh my gosh, I remember this part. I like that part. Um, but we got rid of it for a good reason. It was it didn't need to keep going. But I mean, in terms of all the other stuff, the guitars and everything, like I can remember so clearly coming up with all those riffs and and doing the demos and coming up with like lead parts and everything and bass lines and stuff. And it's all super fresh to me in my my mind's eye, my memory.
0: And you mentioned this record uh, is maybe a little less emo. We have to ask, how do you what do you think of when you think of emo or what is emo in terms of saves the day? Well, first of all, I love,
3: I love emo. I think it's so cool. It's like a brand new genre, you know, emerged mm-hmm. in the late 90s. Um, and all of a sudden there's like, it's it's as if, you know, you were a part of like punk coming on the scene or hip hop, like starting. We got to be part of emo being, you know, born, which is just wild. So I just feel like I love Emo music, and I'm grateful to be a part of that movement. Um, I think what I mean by that is that I wrote that album like it's just such a great time in my life. I just like felt so good and was so happy and so excited about life. So you can you can hear that. What I mean by it, that it's not the fact that it's not as emo is that um, you know as soon as we get to stay what you are, I'm dealing with a lot more darker themes. And that's emo, you know, the heavy stuff, the emotional gotcha. stuff, you know, so at your funeral is pretty darn emo.
0: Yep. That makes sense. That's, uh, you know, we often we've had a couple episodes, I think, on the topic of what it is and isn't and what bands are part of it or not. So uh, it's great to get your, your point of view. A view
3: purist. on. Yeah, I'm not much of a purist when it comes to that kind of thing. I respect the art form. I think it's cool. And I'm not one of those guys that's like, don't call us emo. I think it's totally rad. It's awesome.
1: Well, it's the same thing with, like, I think shoegaze gets the same sort of.
3: That's a weird, that's just a weird term.
1: You know what I mean? It's
3: kind of passive. It's just not, that's almost a pejorative term. You right. Know, it's almost putting down that style. Like, you just sit there, you're bored, you're staring at your feet.
1: <laughs> you know? And I think that's where it came from. It was a journalist that that nicknamed I think it was My Bloody Valentine as shoegaze because Kevin Shields had like 40 pedals in front of him and we just kept looking down at his pedals.
3: That's wild. And yeah, and they kind of dip. took it
1: and went, "Okay, fine." Kind of like <laughs> punk. <laughs> right. Punk is almost
3: a diss that got, you know, appropriated.
1: And so it's curious, you know, listening to this record now versus listening to it 20 years ago. I think so. When you made, oh, let me backtrack for a sec. When you made this record, you were in college, right? It, I think, right yeah. That time? yeah. At NYU. Okay, so you were a couple years younger than Jay and myself because when this came out, Jay and I had both graduated college. So we were sort of looking at. Were so you
3: like '96 in high class of '96 in high school or what? 94? Oh no, no, we
1: graduated. We graduated college. Well, '98. So. graduated
3: college in 98 so you guys i graduated high school in 98
1: okay so there's about a four year difference there so the emo scene was like what the people who were a couple years younger than us were getting into and we were sort of seeing it from the outside because we weren't a part of that those house shows that were happening and that those touring circuit bands so it's interesting to hear it in that context from a distance then, and then hear it now where there's kind of blurred lines between any sort of genres, I mean, you go onto Spotify, you just kind of listen to everything. And
2: right. Right.
1: When I hear it now, I don't hear, I mean, I hear some of the contemporaries, but I, I was listening to this. I was going, Oh, I kind of hear some like bad religion in this song with the way that with the way that vocal harmony is going on in this song or the way that the, the rift breaks down on this, this particular track. Did you, do you find yourself, you know, I, I know at the time I had read that some of the stuff you were listening to was like Pinkerton and, and, um, some contemporary bands of the nineties, maybe that had existed a few years before, but as you have some distance from that, do you hear a broader range of influences or of, or of, uh, bands that, you know, you might've not thought of at the time that. You were being influenced by, but now that you recognize, oh, I really was into Zeppelin. I didn't realize it, or something like that.
3: Uh, <laughs> no, I definitely know exactly where it came from. You know what? What I was like really psyched on at the time, and you know what inspired me. And it's I said it a bunch in interviews. It's all in there. Um, we were really into Foo Fighters record, uh, "The Color and the Shape," and we were driving around on tour. Listener refused album The Shape of Punk to Come. Those are probably the two primary records. And then it's Weezer and uh, Jawbreaker. You know, that's basically like what I was obsessed with. And then, um, you know, there's other bands that I sometimes don't, I sometimes forget to mention in interviews. Bands like Hot Water Music and Bouncing Souls. I was really, really into the Bouncing Souls album Maniacal Laughter at the time.
1: Okay. And if
3: you listen to that, they're a New Jersey band, so I got to see them all the time. And I was like obsessed with them and Lifetime at the same time. Like those two bands would play New Brunswick or Philly all the time. So I got to see them all the time. And I loved both of those bands. Lifetime did a lot less um, mid tempo songs, they were like super blazing fast, like Bad Brains. But um, bouncing souls was mid tempo, and it was not your standard punk or pop punk. There were these melodic songs that had um, emotion to them, but the songwriter—they were just like really good songs, very much like Jawbreaker. Um, their record 24-hour revenge therapy is like one of the most important albums of my my entire life, and I feel like if you listen to Jawbreaker and you could almost imagine me singing those and it would be like, you know, through being cool part two, <laughs> you know?
1: <laughs> Interesting. I see it now. I, yeah. It's all jawbreaker. Yeah. And I don't pick, that's weird. Cause I, that would not be a, like if you were to it's say name, ten... it's,
3: I think it's cause right. I think it's his voice that where you wouldn't be able to fully like instantly go, Oh, that's what it, this reminds me of. But right. if you listen to the songs, like cuz i've sent, i have like an extremely high register and so i sing um unlike you know most like male singers who have m- a much more you know just typical male re- range and blake schwarzenbach he doesn't go for high notes you know even in his next project just to brazil there's very few super high notes that he goes for right so I think that you know when you think of say the day there's like that urgent sort of um there's that urgent singing that i think is very indicative of emo what would become emo these kids it basically sounds like kids you know singing it doesn't emo is like a like young young men it's not like grown men aside from like hot water music for like grizzled guys <laughs> um but yeah, emo, the whole thing with emo is it was these super young bands. So you can like you could hear on you know, our first album or the first demo, I'm like sixteen, seventeen. You know, like I'm just a kid. I was fresh out of high school when we did through being cool, you know. So So anyway, if you pictured a kid singing those jawbreaker songs, it would be <laughs> days of that. Day.
1: When did you figure out look? Like, how to best utilize your voice did you figure that out before the first record or did you have to work through that, came, that that was
3: a process an ongoing process that mostly came from playing shows once you become like an actual working band you're playing shows all the time it's not just a one-off show like once a month or once a week you know where you could sort of like shred your vocals and then rebuild your voice over the week and play another show on saturday You have to play a show every single night and you have to drive 10 hours a night to get to the next place. You're not getting sleep and you're malnourished and whatnot. It really wears on you physically. And it's extremely hard to keep your voice in shape. And I used to lose my voice all the time. It's the worst feeling ever. Um, and then I actually blew out my voice doing through being cool on the song third engine. Um, I was like really going for it that day. And, uh, by the end of the, the, uh, The session, my throat felt really weird in a way that it never felt before. And the next day, I couldn't sing at all. And so we had to postpone finishing the vocals. Um, And that was a wake-up call because we had to uh, book, book more time, two half days a different studio. And so it became clear to me that I really need to learn how to take care of my voice. So that's when the journey began, really.
0: Where did you go from there? Then
3: I I discovered the Beatles, and then it was like, oh, I'll just learn how to sing by singing the Beatles. So I learned like a million Beatles songs. And I still, um, to this day, when I'm not touring, I keep my voice in shape by doing Beatles songs because they're the perfect range. They're the exact same range as me. Wow. They sing very high, and they sing powerfully. But they have perfect control. And their melodies are so well composed that you have to really know what you're doing to hit all those notes. So it was extremely fun, like as a music nerd, um, to just like undertake that and dive in and learn how to sing like the pros.
0: Have you ever taken lessons or done any training of any kind?
3: Uh, our guitar player Arun and I went to learn how to warm up one, uh, one time in Detroit. His. Friend's dad is this opera singer who like teaches vocal lessons. So he carved out like an hour for us before our gig in Detroit. One time, we went over there to his house and stood around his piano, and I recorded it on my voice memo. Um, and we were there for like we we really only were there for about 20-30 minutes. Um, and at the recorded warm up is like thirteen minutes long, and that's what I warm up with every single day still sometimes twice a day and it's just like a bunch of scales and um like musical patterns that you're just wrapping your voice around and sort of ramping up to your full power um but yeah since i since i recorded it i didn't need to i didn't need to keep going back i just keep listening to that thing Mm
0: -hmm. so uh revisiting the record i um Boy, I hear a lot of metal riffs on this record <laughs> that I don't think I heard. Yeah, like you uh, mentioned, the Bad
3: Religion, through. which is which is interesting. I he- I hear what you mean by the Bad Religion thing. I was never like obsessed with them. I liked the one album. I think it's called Suffering.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, at one point, I was pretty into that, but that their music never really came through
2: um,
3: to me. Like those riffs were a lot of like Walter Schreifels from. Gorilla Biscuits and quicksand. He wrote and Youth of Today. He wrote these crazy cool metal esque riffs, and I was never into metal, but I'm a huge classic rock guy, like Aerosmith and Led Zeppelin, and so I love riffs. Like I, riffs are the one of the first things that like mesmerized me about music, and then you get a guitar and you start learning riffs. So another band that was very much riff based. Actually, this is wild. I hadn't thought about this. Dag Nasty. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. It's a band that I was obsessed with, and their guitar player who wrote all their songs is Brian Baker, who's in pad Religion. So there you go. And was he in Junkyard Baker. too? <laughs> the, the, I haven't heard of that. I got to check that out. But yeah, it's Brian Baker. That's what I'm. That, that, that was like my favorite riff master back then. Was Brian Baker.
1: I'm pretty sure that he was
3: in Minor Threat as well. Yes, and I loved Minor Threat. Yeah,
1: Brian Baker was uh, was in the original. It's uh, Jay, remember? So we're going to go off on a little tangent here. It seemed like towards the end of the '80s, there were some guys that were in like punk and hardcore bands who went on to do like metal. One of those bands was the four horsemen that Rick Rubin put together. And it was like a bunch of dudes who had been in, and they sound like the black crows essentially. And then, uh, Brian Baker had been in, um, you know, a ton of stuff, government issue and, and minor threat, like you mentioned. Right, right, right. And, uh, bad religion. And so in 89, I guess he'd probably joined him in 88 after he left. I guess we've been after, well, with, yeah. After Dag Nasty, uh, he goes to this metal band <laughs> called junkyard and they're like a straight up, like, mm. you know, hard rock. It's like a, I don't think i ever yeah, heard
0: it's that. It's like a blues, hard rock That's me- ladies, metal thing. Yeah. Huh. I mean,
3: there was starting to be some of that, the cross cross pollination, the blending of worlds back then. There's, uh, what were they called? Um, Into Another was like very sort of classic rock, but they came from yep. the 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 uh, hardcore scene, and uh, that was the kind of stuff that inspired me. Like Walter Strifele coming from writing Gorilla Biscuits and and then starting Quicksand. Um, there was something about the way that Walter writes guitar that just is exciting. Like it's just, I love his riffs, and uh, and I I was going for that. In fact, the uh, this first save the day album can't slow down starts, and I've told Walter this with um, a conscious homage to uh, Girl Biscuits' classic record Start Today, um, which starts with a guitar um, that goes da da da, and so on. Can't slow down. We consciously started the album with that da da da. so recently we were able to um share a headlining spot with them at a three-day festival called this is hardcore in philly and we knew they were they were going to headline the night after us and we knew they were going to probably start with the song new direction that the song with that opening guitar riff so we obviously had to start our set with the with the song that is the tip of the hat to that so it was really fun
0: but I wanna go back to Third Engine because the intro to that song yeah, that's, before that's you sing that sounds like Iron Maiden. <laughs> <laughs> like when I say metal, shreddy like riff. that is that's some Paul Mutant riff. going on and like
3: But also what's what what's cool about it is that it's very much melancholy. Like that yeah. riff is very melancholy. Very that's one of the more emo songs on Serbian cool. So it's the the chord progression is minor but melodic. And, like, I don't really love, like, angry, aggressive. Like, I'm not a metal fan. I like Master mm-hmm. of Puppets, and honestly, I like the Black Album by Metallica, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but, um, like, it's okay. I'm not... Like, I don't like... Yeah, I don't like that kind of music. Um, mm-hmm. I think the thing that was appealing to me about things that, like, Walter would write was there would also be this melodic singing on top of it. Yeah, and the guitar parts weren't that far off from something you might hear on Jawbreaker, who also have like emotional guitar riffs. It's not like angry, you know. I mean, I know yeah. anger is an emotion, but I mean, in terms of that emo, sad boy thing.
1: Uh, well, I what's I, going? I think you might like Iron Maiden, though, based on that song. I think
3: <laughs> I really don't, though. That's the thing because like, it, I don't, sounds I, like, I, it sounds I, like it sounds like the Number it, of the
1: Beast.
0: I mean, even the drum what fill. That's
3: people say. People say that to me all the time. They're like, we hear so much Iron Maiden through being cool. I'm like, are you kidding me? That's funny to me. because I don't, I, I couldn't even tell you the name of an Iron Maiden song. No. I have literally never heard a complete Iron Maiden song in my life.
0: You should check it out. I think you might like it. <laughs> I,
3: I'm never going to listen to it. It's not up my alley. Um, I could get into like, ne- like, in my later years, I can... Uh, without it being a guilty pleasure to get into, like, Def Leppard, but that's pop music, if you listen to it. I'm a pop music. Right. I like melody. It's it's
1: not far off from Master of Puppets, to be honest, in terms of... Yeah,
3: Master of Puppets has real music. It's, like, really melodic and
1: extremely
3: catchy. And uh, there's something about their guitars that remind me of, like, really dark Led Zeppelin. And Zeppelin is the reason that I, I wanted to make music to begin with. So it all kind of is connected. <laughs> The, uh... there, you know what? There's probably a lot more Metallica in those. When you're hearing metal, yeah. I, was, I was really into Master of Puppets. Like, I listened to that album a thousand times. I really liked it. So I bet that's where that was all coming yeah. from. You get the like metal-inflected inf- riffs from Walter Schreifold and Gorilla Biscuit and Quicksand, and then Metallica. But, you know, I would never have thought of that, and it's not something that I would, like, consciously, like, wave the flag for. (laughs) But that record is sick.
0: Yeah, and it's not something that I think, you know, in 1999 I would have heard myself, but just with a little bit of time, like, things start to... Yeah, that's a great...
3: I'm glad that you asked that. different. Like, I'm I'm seeing it with new eyes in in light of that. Yeah. That's what it is, though. It's Metallica. It's like, like "Rocks" kind of "Juice Magic" is like a, it's like a pop metal riff.
0: Yep. Yeah, I definitely picked up on that too. It has a really strong melody, but a really nice chunky riff under it, and you kind of get that pop metal kind of sound.
3: Yeah, and like the riff for "You Vandal" is very much like that, just like pop metal.
0: (laughs) Yeah. What's a guitar tone on this record is great um it, it holds up yeah. really well i mean overall the sound of the record holds up really well like you would wouldn't know it was recorded in 99 it sounds as modern as anything oh
3: yeah steve evitz the producer killed it i mean he made a record that sounds timeless so you could listen to that you could listen to that 20 years from now and it'll still sound good that's all steve
0: and he worked with a lot of metal bands too <laughs>
3: That's true. That's yeah. true. Steve, yeah, his his nickname on the uh, album in the liner notes is Steve. I'm still Metal Evans. There
0: you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he had he had uh, done symphony acts, which is like big epic metal and MOD and, and like Sepultura
3: and stuff. Yeah.
0: yeah, Hatebreed, Snapcase.
3: He did all the. Um, that's actually how we got into Steve. Was he was working with all those bands, plus my favorite band lifetime we got to work with this guy. He's right down the highway. We saved up 500 bucks to spend one day with him and made the uh, demo tape, the save they demo tape, and then continued to go back to him until we were supposed to do Stay What You Are with him, but he was busy in Brazil with Sepultura.
1: Got it. So, do you so that's how play... we found Rob
3: Schnapp, which is amazing.
1: Do you play guitar on this record, or is it just, at the? T- I guess it would be at the time, Ted and Yeah, David. I did a
3: bunch of the guitar. Okay. I did a lot of it. I didn't do the bulk of it on can't slow down. I recorded 99% of the guitars who didn't have that much time. And I was the best player in the band. Um, on through being cool, uh, we had a little bit more time and, you know, it, it meant a lot for the guys to be able to, they didn't, it's, it would have felt different for them if I had played everything. But, you know, if we were going to track like, like the, the riff, uh, third engine riff, that's me. um, for being cool. That's me. Like some of the stuff where it was wound up taking a long time and it looked like it could have been an hour's long, you know, um, sort of like head headache. Uh, Steve would come out into the, uh, into the lounge or whatever and be like, Hey Chris, can you just like come throw this part down right now? And so I did that on every saves the day record until I wound up taking back the guitar mantle for a while so sort of the uh the secret weapon
1: what were you playing at that time guitar rig wise
3: um we had uh it was a marshall 2000 jcm marshall
2: 2000
3: okay um double tracks with uh 5150 mm. and it was all like it was all like Les paul's and uh I can't remember if we had. We used to track with this PRS that I got with Paul Reed Smith, which is they kind of get a bad rap because of certain bands that wound up using them, but Mm -hmm. they're really well built. Mm -hmm. It was like a workhorse in the studio.
1: I'm surprised with the riffage. There's not some like BC Riches or some. uh, (laughs) (laughs) some That sounds
3: like a. Now we we always the thing is we always were like a rock band, you know? And so we never did the leak, like, um, dual rectifiers or anything like that. It was always Marshall.
0: I think it's it was the, always uh, like, the, you know,
3: classic rock tones. The,
0: uh, the, are they all double tracked? Is that gives it the kind of the big, yeah, sound?
3: Yeah, they're, they're double tracked. And then a lot of the choruses slam in with an extra two. So it's four guitars.
0: And some of the, um, I'd be curious to hear the demos because something like, uh, say, you vandal, um, I really like, it's interesting how the guitar part is really kind of behind the drums in that. And that would seem to be like something that would take like playing as a band to figure that out. Is, is that how something like that comes together? Or Do you, mean the like,
3: you mean it's like, like tempo, like to the timing of it is slightly behind the drums?
0: Yeah, like the drums are like really fast. And I think it
3: would be. it's probably the that it. the drums, the, the drums were played fast. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Brian was. That was the f- the first time we ever tried to play with a click track on that album, um, and like it was pretty. It was tough, you know. And that's just you know, you're young musicians. That's just like growing pains or whatever. Sure. But you know, we just work around that and sort of play with the uh, like the tempos as they would rise and fall.
1: So you mentioned about when you were talking about blowing your voice out this this is i guess this is the time when you're doing those you know, you're know you getting in a van and it's 10 hours per between cities and um i would imagine 20 years later that that situation is different now that the that when you like you've got <laughs> dates coming up with hot rod circuit what what is right life on the road like now as compared to then
3: well, I mean, in a way, it's similar. It's just that now we'll get a vehicle and hire a driver and have bunk beds, you know, so we can sleep when we're driving. You know, back then, it was just a van, and we were all doing the driving ourselves, taking shifts. Right. You know, and not having no money for hotel rooms. Or if we did, we'd have one hotel room, and we'd sneak everybody by the the the, uh, the lobby, the desk, the concierge or whatever We'd have to, cause you couldn't have like six people pile into a room back then. I don't know if you can nowadays, but if they, we'd have, we'd send two people in to ask for a double, and then we'd all like find like secret exits to get let in through the outdoor.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> so wow. yeah, so these days we don't, we just, we just get to, like I, I'm pretty, like, I just, I, t- I have to take care of my voice, and so. You know, if I want to go out and hang out with everybody at the bars, like afterwards, like I wake up the next day and it's like I don't have the same power in my, vo- my voice. So, and plus I'm a dad. Like at home, I'm on s- such a diff I'm not on like rock and roll hours at home. So like, I'm pretty like early to bed and wake up, you know, sort of like at a reasonable hour.
1: Yeah, right. That that stuff all goes out the window once you have to wake a kid up for school and. Get their lunch and all that yeah, kind of stuff. You
3: gotta, yeah, you gotta do everything. Um, and and also like I really like that. I was never much of a dude to like sleep all day unless I was in like the depths of a dark depression. But um <laughs> I like getting up and doing stuff.
1: So when you're putting together tour dates now, I know so you're you're gonna be doing this record in full, right? And then uh, Hot Rod Circuit's doing, I think, Sorry About Tomorrow in full. Um, yeah. Are, is there, you know, when, I'm thinking back to the, like the late 90s, early 2000s. It's basically, go, what city do we need to hit next? What, Who do we know there? You know, you know, putting sort of that together, if, if you're not working with a booking agency, and then once you get a booking agency, they're obviously going to handle that for you. Is does that has that changed in the way that you you figure out what I mean? You're only doing a limited number of shows, so is figuring out where you're going to play different now? Are you looking at like, well, on Spotify we've got you know seventeen thousand listeners from this city, so maybe we should try to capitalize on that. Is there any new thought process in terms I mean of doing that?
3: Somebody might be think, thinking that way, like our booking agent Andrew Ellis, but I don't. I certainly don't think that way. I mean, I trust his intuition. Um, but, like, for these shows we're doing, you know, a show in New Jersey on the day the record came out 20 years ago. That just makes sense. You know, it's our home. Right. That's where we started. And and then the next day we're playing, playing Brooklyn, which also makes sense because, you know, New York, New Jersey is like, that's our original home territory. And then we're taking uh, a week Off and heading to Los Angeles and playing Anaheim in LA. And that makes sense too. I mean, New York and Los Angeles are probably the two biggest music cities, you know, in terms of live music in the country. So it's sort of like, you know, if you're going to do these only two shows on each coast, or let's say you're only going to do four shows total, it wouldn't make sense, even though we love Columbus, you know, to go (laughs) do it there. Because, you know, people that might want to, like, make sure they're there and go out of their way would have to, you know, make it, like, a be like a destination concert.
1: Right. Right. I, yeah, I'm curious about, I know, I see when bands get together to do these, like, full album shows, I'm, I'm always, because they tend to, like, hit New York, hit Chicago, hit L.A., you know... And then you you kind of like wonder like well why are they playing St Louis like what did they ha- did they traditionally have a fan base there did the, did something happen where they used to have draw a lot of people there and that's why they're going back or is there some sort of statistical analysis being done on the back end by booking agents and and whatnot I got to imagine they're they're crunching oh, some I'm sort sure of data Somebody's
3: cracked Yeah I'm sure sure somebody's cracked that code Yeah <laughs> I'm just like I'm really pretty simple, oblivious dude. I'm just like, get up there and do
0: my thing. Were there any cities, uh, you know, around this time that you guys were playing that really stood out as, as where you went over well and just back uh, then? remembered? Yeah.
3: Oh yeah, it was like Chicago, Seattle, L.A., San Francisco. Um, these places were like really coming out, going nuts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we started in the tri-state area, you know, like northeast primarily and then eventually making our way down to Virginia and Florida and stuff, very east coast based. And then when we uh, started to travel more consistently through the entire United States, for sure, Chicago has always been there for us. Minneapolis as well. uh, Milwaukee uh, has always been great. It's it's a lot of those places like where you'd expect, you know, there's a lot of people, you know, so sometimes it's like just the amount of people that are in, in an area makes it more likely that more people will want to come. I think How that's about, why bands don't go through, you know, smaller populations, just, you know, it's just sort of playing the odds.
0: Right. How about outside of the U.S.? Have you done any touring outside the U.S.? Yeah,
3: yeah, a lot. yeah Yeah, lots we've been all over um and it's wild my favorite place to play overseas is london
2: Mm
0: mm-hmm
3: um yeah shows are just
0: bananas there how is it different like uh i would say say the way that it's
3: different is that in the uk there's a very high level of musical intelligence Mm. i don't know if that they're they're teaching that in, in schools and whatnot uh, or if it's just because, you know, everybody grew up listening to the Beatles or something. I have no idea how this all happened, but there seems to be an extremely sophisticated sense of of music. And um, I mean, saves the day, you know, it might you might just sound pretty straightforward, but if you go to try to learn it, it's pretty complicated stuff. And, you know, and it's, it's subtle enough where, you know, it's not asking to be noticed, but that's like if you go to learn a Beatles song and you suddenly realize, "Whoa, this is kind of this is like more cool than I actually thought." Just listening to it, they like, do this cool chord change here that you wouldn't expect. Mm-hmm. Um, so that saves the day. Being, um, you know, I think, fairly smart music, um, we are we've always been appreciated in, in England, and also there is a sort of gloomy disposition there, <laughs> the stiff upper lip. Um, I had a friend once who was our tour manager over there. He said, Chris, you're, you're a Brit, you're a Brit. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. And just because my, my disposition Mm. and, um, yeah. So I don't, I mean, I don't know if that's, that's true, but I think there's, there's gotta be some emotional connection as well. It's not just that the music's like cool or whatever.
1: Did the emo thing matter when you traveled overseas? Did people care about that as a, as a genre description? Yeah.
3: Yeah. I would say that's true of the entire evolution of says and all the bands in the world of emo. It's sort of, it goes hand in hand, you know, it's like the sex pistols come on the scene and it's about the fact that they're a punk band. You know what I mean? Okay. Um, you know, like hip hop emerges and it's about the fact that it's hip hop, you wouldn't call it anything else. So, you know, so basically, um, we've been connected to that or even, uh, I guess, um, you know, described like that or whatever, our identity has been interwoven with emo since the start. And, and emo became this huge wave of music that was incredibly popular and successful and it happened so organically. It was like people were psyched back then. I don't know if you had that sense because you guys were a couple years older, but like our specific generation, um, in that little window, like everybody that's that age was like hell of psyched on on emo. It was like really fucking cool.
1: You know what's weird when we look back? You know, doing this podcast, we've done four hundred and something episodes. We well, think sorry. of the '90s have always been. Just been lumped together as like it's just all one thing, but really there are these like micro movements. Like you're talking about emo when we were just a little bit older than that, and for Jay and I, it's probably the beginning of the decade is when we graduated high school or we're in high school and then graduating high school, and the 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 massive shift happens where it's no longer like
3: grunge and indie rock. Yeah, it's
1: not Motley Crue and poison on mtv Haven anymore and nirvana and, yeah exactly and that's where our sort of Alice
3: in chains and exa- Soundgarden. that's yep, what we yep. grew up listening to like that's what we our generation got psyched on that that music yeah and then just a couple years later um i don't know how the hell it all turned into what it turned into but it's <laughs> well. so cool to me like i love studying the uh history of like the roots of all this stuff like what led to punk rock what led to grunge Uh, it's really really cool and yeah you're i think you're totally right um and it's such a fun thought that there's like these waves these small like years long phases of new sort of cultural occurrences and then in hindsight you're like oh well that was grunge and this is post grunge and you know, this is Neil yeah. and then this is pop punk or whatever. Um, it's cool.
0: Yeah. And I remember, uh,
3: 90, 90s were a great time, man. We lucked out.
0: We did. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably the, the last, uh, great decade for, for rock and roll in terms of just popular well, attention and feel. Yeah.
3: But that's, that's like, what would the future say
0: about that? Mm be like,
3: Psh, you don't know what I have in store. <laughs> <laughs> I hope. At one at one point there was no there was no notion that something like the Beatles could happen. At yeah. one point there was no notion that something like the Renaissance could happen, or the steam engine, or a wheel. Yeah, this is true. Blasphemous.
0: So, what are your thoughts right now on the music uh, industry, like as a business? How do you?
3: I think is it's it, all it, about it it to come, come together in a way that it never has before, in a massive global cohesive um, explosion. Where all, like you were saying earlier, you go on Spotify. And it's not necessarily about genres. You kind of listen to everything sometimes on shuffle. You know, like last night I was listening to my uh, iTunes on shuffle or Apple Music, whatever you call it now. You know, I get Lizzo. You know, and then. You know, the, the next track is um, Joyce Manor, you know, so and I'm, I'm grooving, I'm loving both of them. I think that's what's going to happen. And I think you're hearing it start to happen in hip hop now where you could hear that those melodies sometimes that these guys are singing sound like Fallout Boy mm. or, you know, or Yellow Card or My Chemical Romance. Like there's like there's even that almost nasally whiny, you know, twinge to the voice. And, and so I think you're going to just have a lot of like just uh, cross pollination. It's going to be fucking awesome.
0: Uh, I have a nine year old daughter. I have to say, that's probably, that's mostly what her experience is like just going on YouTube and finding all kinds of different yeah, music. Yeah, it's all
3: just life now. It's all just culture. Yeah. You know what I mean?
0: So, how do you get Everything noticed in that your- or like, uh, like, how does that part of it work now? Well, for the you?
3: Fir- first things first, you just have to be yourself. Yeah. If you strive to get noticed, that's thirsty and everyone can feel it and it's gross. You know, it's like look at me, look at me, look at me. It's disgusting. You have to you have to calmly and casually do your work, put your head down and do hard work and love what you're doing. Like say that they never tried to get discovered, it just happened, you know, like you can feel it when a band is looking for that hit you could feel it you could see it in their eyes and their pro their promo photos it's and it's it's a turn off mm. yeah, we've seen that, jay but I would say like <laughs> if anybody wants like advice like um, advice um you know if you really love music, just work your ass off, study music um Write as much as you can. Don't judge what you're writing. You have to, because then the muses, you know, won't give their, the ideas over, hand them over as easily. You have to be open and explore and have fun and, and not be afraid. You just have to have fun. And it's not about what people think. It's about how you feel. Do you like it? Are you trying to work through something in your life and understand your experience through your art? That's what it is. That's what writers do. If otherwise it's just going to bother people. It's going to be a, a nuisance. It's going to annoy people. Or like the only other people that will like that are all are also shallow, narcissistic people that have they're they're not connected to the, the depths of their their true experience as a human. It's
0: just superficial. And it's certainly never been easier to make music in terms of uh, having access to recording yes. equipment and
3: yeah, <laughs> dope. I mean that's that's the revolution of, of hip hop. And bands like Depeche Mode were doing that where all of a sudden you didn't have to spend thirteen years like learning cello or flute or guitar or whatever you If you had an idea in your head, you could make it happen with three fingers.
1: yep yeah, I mean, you can be on I have a kid in my neighborhood, I shouldn't call him a kid. he's like twenty something. He writes music, he puts it on Spotify. he uses a you know service to get it on Spotify. And, like, last Friday, he opened for a – he's a hip-hop artist. He opened for someone at the Newport Music Hall. And he just based on – he gets, you know, sp- he gets put on Spotify playlists. And he goes out and he does shows at clubs and stuff. And then he just opened for somebody who had, like, a thousand people at at uh, Newport Music Hall. And it's all – and he's all his wild. own work. I mean, just him working and constantly writing and constantly putting stuff up and – it's uh, yeah, a totally I mean, it's different really world. Like
3: the, uh, there's a bit of like a, the magic of fate and luck and all this stuff that's actually at at hand and pl- at play here. And I think that's really what it what it is. You have to be lucky enough to be swept up in the tide of time. You know, but I think you know, like uh, I think the. Uh, the richer and truer and more sincere the story the better it is
0: how uh, how important was it to be a good live band and were they really focused on everything
3: that? i grew up i grew up playing cello and orchestra starting when i was six for seven years and you had to like really know what you were doing and so by the time i got the guitar like my ears had been trained for seven years already as you know as a classical musician and so I could hear, you know, fractions of a note that were out of tune or a timing that was off. And every time you're in an orchestra and someone speeds up, they, you know, the conductor taps on the music stand and stops. Everybody goes, start over again. So that's why there's been a thousand people in Save the Day, because, you know, I was a bit, of, I'm a taskmaster. I know how I want it to sound. And I mean, I don't feel bad. It's awkward for people, you know, to experience that kind of quote-unquote authority or whatever like i have the final say um but yeah it was uncomfortable for young musicians to have to deal with that and i would say i was probably extremely difficult to work with and still am it's not fun <laughs> <laughs> i can't change though you know i can't change i yeah i'm like almost like I'm almost like on the spectrum with music because like if it, it doesn't feel right to me. I feel like seasick
1: or something. That's interesting. I've heard that before from people who have very, you know, finite or, or very fine listening skills that if something is off, they actually yeah. like physically feel it, that it's, that it's, yeah, it, you, like, feel hurts like them. you feel it physically, you physically feel
3: discomforted, like un, uneasy, like almost queasy. I once read in a science journal on an airplane about a study that was done where they hooked up people to all these nodes and whatever and played music that they liked and music that they hated. And what they noticed was that when you played the music that they liked, um, the blood vessels would open up and circulation would increase. And there was more happiness and comfort in the, the uh, nervous system. When you played music that people did not like, the blood vessels would literally constrict. So you're literally getting less oxygen from your, your blood. <laughs> so once I read that, I was like, oh, thank God, I'm not crazy. Because <laughs> it's, it's maddening. It's maddening. Like I can't even be out in the world. With a, I have friends of mine that would be like, you're the nicest guy, but you're such a dick about music. <laughs>
1: <laughs> My wife says the exact same thing about me. Because, like, I'll be listening yeah. to something in the car, and and I'll, I'll if I hear something that turns me off immediately, I have to turn the station. And she's like, "I like that yeah. song," and I'm "I, well, I, I, I can't, I can't yeah. listen to it. It hurts to to listen to it."
3: It's vibrational. It's vibrating your molecules. And you ever heard about or read about solfeggio tones? There are these frequencies in music where the subatomic particles that make up the world uh, at certain frequencies snap into a geometric pattern. If you put grains of sand on a vibrating electric plate and crank up a frequency, just meaning like an electronic frequency, um, all the sand is scattering, scattering, scattering across the board until it gets to a certain frequency where all of a sudden it turns into a snowflake. It is absolutely mind boggling and I highly recommend looking up videos of its solfeggio tones it's spelled s o l f e g g i o solfeggio tones it's like magic crazy
0: wow do you have perfect pitch yes God huh. that's probably part of it too yeah <laughs>
3: Apparently yeah, it's that a nightmare
0: i I've learned that um <laughs> Um, through a YouTube video, that that's you can really actually funny. train people. to have, You can train children, yeah. but not adults. Yeah,
3: yeah. I think that's what happened to me. I got thrown into this Suzuki method uh, at Princeton Day School at six years old, and had to every kid had to pick an instrument for the orchestra through school. And I wound up sticking with that for seven years. So, like, think about being six years old. That's pretty darn young. And oh yeah. they send you home with send you home with cassette tapes of Bach and Mozart and you had to sit there and learn it by ear. You know, it's not there like later symphonies. It'll be like, you know, twinkle, twinkle or something simple like that. But if you have no idea what you're doing with an instrument and you're just like, and they just hand it to you and say, figure this out. um, It's definitely, it starts honing your ears. It's like being somebody that's trying to spot land or something, you know, you get eagle eyes.
1: Yeah, that's why I can never tune a guitar by ear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you could.
3: You would be able to if you listen to the warbling frequencies when you're trying to tune one note to another. If it, there's a wavy feeling, that mm-hmm. means the sine waves are out of, out of sync and it's not in tune. So just you could feel it where those waves go, suddenly they fall into sync and that's in tune.
1: Interesting. Yeah, this got very scientific this episode. I, I like it. It's tight, right? It's good. <laughs> we did. I did not prepare this. <laughs> I feel like we should uh, we should call NPR and get this. Uh, get 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 some. Yeah, hell yeah, yeah. It's next level. This is next level.
3: I mean, it's all there and within in music itself and math and everything. It's
1: you know, humans are smart. Yeah, my I have a seven year old. And she is taking piano, and she already is better than I've ever been in my life at playing piano. So that's amazing. Like can read music, which I never learned to read music. Even though I can play like bass and guitar and stuff like that, and I can play a little bit of piano, but she can read, you know, a music staff, and that's
3: so cool. I think a lot of other countries definitely consciously do that in their curriculum, get people learning math and music at an early age and that's what my school did it was a very nice and sort of exclusive school in princeton that my parents were able to send me to and right away six you know six six years old in first grade you know i didn't know what was what you know and suddenly you're having to learn how to play with an orchestra so that's that is that's so cool you're you're lucky your daughter is is in that
1: early it's it's good to have a music teacher wife who suggested we probably oh, want to get awesome. her going now because it'll help cool. with other, other disciplines to know how to read I music. Highly, and...
3: I highly recommend uh, picking up if you don't have it already, this huge book that's called the complete Beatles. Okay. Maybe it's the complete Beatles scores, something like that. Um, and it's this massive white book um, that has every single song, that the Beatles ever recorded and with the, uh, the music for all the instruments. So if she knows how to read music, you're saying
2: mm-hmm. she could
3: literally go and learn Martha, you know, Martha, my dear, it's all in this book. Oh, wow. Yeah, the complete, be- it's, it might be the complete Beatles score, s- scores, something like that, or it's either the complete Beatles or the complete Beatles scores.
1: I'm gonna have to look that up because yeah. that Feels sounds interesting. Is all you need to
2: study. Yeah.
3: yeah,
1: well, yeah. Uh, we are about to hit the hour mark here, so this would be a good spot Word. for us to uh, to wind down. Cool. Um, I mean, we
3: could talk forever, right?
1: Uh, yeah, basically, yeah. we could go into well, a whole do
3: part two at some
1: point. At, definitely, and um, yeah. if we end up, you know, we do. Not just uh, retrospectives. We do all sorts of episodes. Um, if we end up doing, if we get to Metallica's Black album, maybe you can come on and talk about that record with us. Or um, what's another yeah, one? Sure,
3: I got a, I got a couple things to say about
1: it. <laughs> we we like to bring people on not just for the albums that they made, but that they're also fans of, or maybe albums that I you, think that's awesome. You're maybe that you're a, a fan of that people that yeah I mean, are like, not for as well example, known
2: the,
3: in the wake of the color and the shape the foo fighters record there was a band in new jersey that was inspired by it and made sort of being cool which then led to you know this and that and so yeah so it's all part of this one
1: this one musical conversation
3: and uh, it's a gift to get to be part of it
1: or maybe you could check out that junkyard record and then come back and we I can, gotta
3: check that out we could do an episode
1: out. on that that would be interesting that if, might yeah, that might blow your singer,
3: mind if the singer's good and the drummer doesn't suck and the lyrics don't make me cringe I'll be into it
1: I can't guarantee any of that I'm sorry it was okay <laughs> I don't know about this
3: <laughs> I'll put my toe in uh, very very uh, carefully because I don't want to set off my uh, my, music, my motion sickness yeah. You know? but i'm I'm gonna try I'm all gonna right try. so I'm doing it you junk care I'm doing it
0: you want to listen to the 1989 debut album that's the classic the
1: cl- okay. classic I'm in quotation marks it. um <laughs> as far as uh the band people should go to Facebook that's uh that's where they can get updates and stuff like that and then there's also I believe on there there's a link to where people can pick up the 20th anniversary re-release, which has the bonus tracks you were talking about um, earlier. When does that? Is that on sale now, well, or is that a pre-order now?
3: I think it's pre-order now. I'm the worst at knowing like anything about all this stuff.
1: <laughs> That's okay.
3: I'm like not a good sales salesman. Uh, but uh, yeah, check it out. You just yeah, type saves the day into the computer, and something will happen.
1: Let's see what happens when I. It's your yeah, merch, st- merch store is the top
0: result. So, yeah, you're good. Saves the Somebody is doing your there we SEO go. well. Yes.
3: There we go. Yeah, it's real. the merch line for the Through Being Cool shows in the uh, re release is amazing. So, check that out. Go get some Thir Cool merch.
1: Yep, I've got it up here. I'll- I will link to that in the show notes. For uh, this particular episode, thank you guys.
3: This was this was fun chatting.
1: Thank you. Thanks for for taking some of your uh, Sunday night out and and chatting with us. We greatly appreciate it. Absolutely, I
3: really appreciate
1: it. All right, have a good evening, Chris. Okay, you as well, y'all. Bye, guys. Bye, bye. Bye. Thanks
0: for listening. To support the podcast, visit www patreon.com forward slash digneyout and become a monthly subscriber at www.digneyoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages as well as our merchandise store at
2: Zazzle.com.